Thanks, Joff. That was great. And, uh, it's great to come together and to be able to worship our God like that. No other religion, no other faith uh, has that sort of engrafted into its very being. We are a worshipping, singing, praising our God people. Um, I just want to. I want to start today with a little story about myself. I always like revealing a little bit more about myself to you people so you sort of know more about me. But I want to share with you about an experience uh, in my life uh, that I've had that actually, um, just organising myself here, I really did get more than I bargained for. Um, I mean, I had, I, I had my expectations of what this might be like. Um, you know, I'd spoken to other people who had, who had been there before me, so to speak, and I had compiled uh, quite a mental picture of, of what I, I thought it would be like. And uh, uh, it was just a matter of time until I, too, would know this mysterious nature of, of this thing, and uh, it was an enticing uh, prospect. Some of the people, though, that I'd spoken to, I thought I'd better, I'd better find out where I'm heading and what I'm doing, so I... Uh, I spoke to various people, and some of the people I spoke to, they said, you know, it's, it's, it really is the greatest thing you can do. They really did talk about it in glowing terms, and they were really living it. But they, they made no false pretenses uh, as they spoke to me about it. They, they said things like, you know, it is great, but it, it takes a lot of work. And uh, you will have to make sacrifices to get the most out of it, and... And things like that. It's not all a beer and skittles. This thing comes at a at a cost. And then there are other people that I spoke to who were uh, they were less enthusiastic. <clears throat> they didn't seem as excited about it. Um, uh, they just they weren't overjoyed with it at all. They're just a bit ho hum and yeah. And then there were others that I spoke to who just kind of dismissed it as a total waste of time, a complete irrelevance, really. And I reckon uh, in this short little framework that I've presented, you would know what I'm talking about. Bill thinks he knows because he's grinning like a Cheshire cat down here. He thinks he's onto me. You know what I'm talking about. I'm actually speaking of my marriage to my wife, Sandy. <laughs> yeah, it stands out as one of the most surprising. Why do you laugh at that? And fulfilling experiences of my life thus far, far beyond what I ever anticipated in life. It's exceeded every expectation I've ever had, despite all the research that I'd done. And I, I, I sort of I sense that all the lads now in the, uh, the church are kind of going, oh, you big suck-up. And that, and all the chicks have just gone, oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that nice? And yet our marriage, it, just, it is what it is. There's nothing outrageously unique about it. Sandy might say something different. There's nothing. It's just functioning as it was designed to function. And we are incredibly and richly blessed as we, as we engage in it and as we approach it. You know, for all of us who have had the opportunity to enter into marriage, some of us are waiting with expectation and hoping. And that, and, but for all of us that have, that, have, that have entered into marriage, it held the same potential. It held the same prospects. 
Um, and for some of us, it does. It, it, it flourishes. It, it goes into experiences unparalleled. And for others, well, if you've been in this church for a little while, you may have heard this expression. It can be as plain and as ordinary as cardboard. It's just like going to the office each day, turning up, clocking in and clocking out. And for others, sadly, I think, they just see it as a waste of time and irrelevance. Why would you even bother engaging in something that is so restrictive, so requires so much of your life and commitment? Yeah, in our, in our passage today, uh, amongst other things, we're going to look at the story of a man in particular as he encounters Jesus and what goes on there. And this lad could not have been prepared in any way for what happens in the, in the drama and in the theatre of, 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 uh, of his engagement with Jesus. The encounter that he has is going to radically redefine his life forever. Our passage begins, and thanks, Di. Good job. Always tough up here, isn't it? But it's great. But, uh, thank you. Our passage begins with the conversion event of Philip. And he's, and he's possibly known to Andrew and Simon, we think, because in verse 44, John, the author, he points out that these guys are all from the fishing town of Bethsaida. That's, they're all local lads and they all possibly know each other through this association, whether it's through their trade of fishing or their mates, they hang out down at a local temple or something like that. But it's, it's, it's probably that that has seen Philip come into contact with Jesus, this association. Isn't it interesting uh, these lads, when they, when they meet Jesus, the first people they go to with this exciting news is their good friends and their family. They want them to know. And now Philip comes into contact with Jesus. And it's Jesus who issues to Philip this thematic uh, invitation that, that rings right throughout the Gospel of John, which Jonathan spoke to us about last week. It's this invitation to come and see. That is to say... That if, you, that if you, Philip, want to find out if what you've heard about me, the testimonies about me are true, come and see. Now, Philip does come and see and uh, has his own experience with Jesus. And now he's, he's filled with uh, evangelical enterprise. Such is the nature of the encounter. And he has a deep, burning conviction that the one he has encountered is the one that Moses has written about in the law. He's the one that all the prophets have, have written about. This, this, this man is the one that the whole Old Testament hope is all about. It's him. I've got to go find my mate Nathaniel and tell him all about it because I know he'll want to know. He will be interested in this. So he sets out to tell his friend Nathaniel and witnesses to him of the fact of what, he's, what he now knows to be true. Now up to this point, the evangelical enthusiasm of these lads and those gathering around Jesus, those who have heard testimony and are coming to see for themselves and finding out the truth in it, has, it's, it's not been met with any conflict or, 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 or any negative negativity. But now we, we see that change a little bit and enters into, into this particular passage, the, one of the main characters, Nathaniel, now turns up. 
And it's, uh, it's this dialogue between Jesus and Nathaniel, the two central characters of a bit of narrative here that I, that I want to look at today. And I think hopefully as we look at it and, and we have a bit of an investigation into it, there's a, a salient little lesson that we can then you know, take and apply a bit of application into our lives. So when Nathaniel hears about Jesus... Philip comes to him and he says, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. It's Jesus, the Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel's response is different to anyone else. When he hears about Jesus as a man from Nazareth, who Philip connects and declares as the hope of the Old Testament, he just happens to be from Nazareth and the son of Joseph, his response is different. It's caution. It's caution. He's not sure. And in fact, his response is is no different to the Pharisees. They also say, Nathaniel has said to Philip, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Are you sure about this? And if you look at what the Pharisees, as they respond to Jesus and as they hear his claims, and uh, in particular in one little instance when, when Nicodemus who's looking into Jesus and finding more about him. And there's this bit of dialogue going on in in chapter um, 7. The Pharisees turn around to him and they say to him, look into it, mate. You will see that no prophet comes from Galilee. This guy's a fraud. This guy's pulling the wool over your eyes. He's not who he says he is. You know, there were plenty of would-be messiahs kicking about in those days. So Nathaniel has every right to be cautious and, and to kind of have scepticism and to doubt uh, what his mate Philip is telling him. And his doubts too would be fueled by the fact that nowhere in the scriptures does it associate the Messiah with Nazareth. It's just not in there. However, unlike the Pharisees and those who respond to Jesus uh, negatively from their heart, Nathaniel doesn't allow his scepticism and his doubt to blind him. You know, it, it, we come up against this sometimes when we're, when we're talking about the experience we've had in our lives and we're talking to our mates about it and they just respond not the way we hope they would. They're cautious. There's a little bit of doubt in it. Now, Philip, he's not equipped with uh, a theological degree you know, he doesn't have doctrine down. He, you know, he can't tell you the doctrine of the Trinity. He can't, you know, can't exegete the whole Bible off by heart. And he responds the only way he knows how. And, and wisdom beyond his years, really. He just says again, come and see, Nathaniel. Come and see. Doesn't get all antsy and cranky pants about, about Nathaniel's negative response. And again, this, this seeing involves here. It's, it's, it's not just a physical um, coming and seeing of, of Jesus and just looking and going, oh, yeah, right. Eh? It's, it's more than that. Jesus' opponents did this. They came and they saw and they watched all the miracles that Jesus did and they were unmoved. They stayed the same. There's more about this coming and seeing that John wants you to do as he writes this. It involves being insightful involves grasping the revelation before you. 
So Nathaniel, he trusts his mate Philip, he's got his doubts, but he goes along to meet Jesus. And, here we, and as he's coming to him, uh, as he's approaching him, Jesus greets Nathaniel with a rather common but evocative greeting. It, it's, it's not uncommon, it wasn't uncommon, uh, for them to you know, call each other Israelites, uh, identifying each other. It wasn't uncommon to say that he's the son of Joseph, although we know that Jesus isn't really the son of Joseph. But that it's just identifying him for who he is and where he's from. These kind of greetings uh, weren't uncommon. But there's something more in this greeting. Jesus says, uh, he saw Nathaniel approaching, he says to him, Truly, the NIV's got it here as a true Israelite, but actually uh, what he's saying is, Truly, I am telling you the truth. Here is an Israelite in whom there is nothing false, uh, in whom there is no deceit, in whom there is no guile, depending on uh, what translation you're reading. He's talking about, he's not just kind of making the point about uh, Nathaniel's ethnicity and his heritage and where he's from. He is is saying that Nathaniel is a certain type of person. He is a person who is without guile or without deceit. There is no deceit in him. And it's not that Nathaniel is perfect. Jesus is making a character assessment of Nathaniel. He's telling us something about who this man is. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a character assessment of, of Nathaniel's core, fundamental and internal disposition. This is who this man really is. He is a man who, is, who has no deceiving him. As I said, it's not that he is perfect or that he is without fault. But it is that Nathaniel is honest. He is clear-sighted. His motives are pure. In fact, he is one whose internal character is upright. He is one who is in good standing with God. That's what Jesus is saying about Nathaniel. John has chosen his words very carefully here. The, the use of no deceit. Now, I've kind of explained it to you, but to the, to the lads and those who are sitting around, who are listening, they would have instantly in their Jewish little brains, with all the heritage that they have, of their, of their faith and their history, straight into their minds would have conjured up this image of one of the patriarchal figures of Israel, Jacob. There's no avoiding this illusion here. He is the namesake of Israel. Jacob, uh, one of the patriarchal figures, one of the head figures of Israel, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. This guy is one of the head figures of Israel's faith. However, Jacob, prior to this, was known as a, as a one of deceit, uh, a crafty little lad. And we, we, we look at uh, Genesis 25 in there, and he's, he's tricking his brother Esau out of his birthright. They had birthrights, and, and, and Jacob tricks Esau out of his birthright, it sort of solicits it out of him, to, gives him a bit of soup and... Gets it out of him. And then in Genesis 27, we see uh, Jacob tricking his father Isaac into giving him Esau's rightful blessing. Esau, as the first son, should have got his father's blessing. But Jacob, with his crafty mum, 
sneaks it off him. He's a real piece of work, this Jacob. He's someone who, whose character is a bit deceitful. However, as we know, he eventually became known as Israel um, after his character was transformed with an encounter with God. Jacob has had an encounter with God at Jabal that has transformed his life. It's an interesting little theme developing here. So, and so such, but don't, don't let that, this, 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 that Jacob was deceitful. He is one of the head patriarchal figures of the faith of Israel. They hold this man in high esteem. They revere him. And because of that, this adds weight to the reference, the character reference that Jesus is giving about Nathaniel. He is one who is without deceit. He is naturally one who is upright before God. This is some kind of character reference from some kind of referee. I reckon, uh, Jonathan, you know, when you're going for pastoral jobs, it would be good to have Jesus as one of your referees on the bottom of your page. might help when you're trying to get into these crazy Baptist churches. Now, Nathaniel's response to Jesus reveals even more of what's going on. Firstly, it actually reveals the accuracy of Jesus' statement. Had, had Nathaniel actually been a man who was a little bit deceitful, someone who had a little bit of self-interest invested into himself, he would have said, you know, oh, Jesus, you go too far. I'm not really like that, you know. And then looking over at the lads going, did you hear what he said about me? But actually... Nathaniel's response shows that he is a man of true character. He's not going to take on board these praises from an unknown source just lightly. Do you know, I reckon even now, now as Jesus says this to him, uh, Nathaniel's probably thinking, oh, you're trying to smooth me over with a little bit of um, talking me up a bit here. And, it, you know, Jesus is kind of, the doubt's still there for Nathaniel. And in fact, he's more suspicious. He's more cautious towards Jesus now. And he rightly says, how do you know me? We've never met. You and I don't know each other. We're not mates. I don't know you like I know these lads over here. We have never met before. How can you make such statements about me? On what, on what basis do you say these things about me? This is a great question to ask. Nathaniel wants to know, why does Jesus make these statements? And we're really sort of getting into the, the, the meat of this little um, drama between Nathaniel and, uh, and Jesus. And we look at this next statement here where Jesus says to him, Uh, if I can find it in my book. The problem with highlighting the whole passage is you, just, you can't pick out the little bit you want. Jesus says to him, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip, before Philip called you. There's been a lot of discussion um, about this little answer of Jesus. A lot of ink has been spilt over what's going on here. There's down to BCV Library, plenty of books about this. And uh, no amount of um, discussion over it. But one thing is certain is that Jesus has made a statement that reveals his supernatural insight uh, into these things. 
He couldn't possibly just, you know, it's not that he's guessed and taken a stab in the dark. He knows something. This man has supernatural insight into the life of Nathaniel. Do you know what? The Old Testament is familiar with this kind of insight. This is not um, uncommon, certainly not unique. Uh, The Old Testament has within it divine men, uh, prophets of God who seem to just know things uh, that seem somewhat supernatural. Guys like Elisha, uh, who had knowledge of of um, Aram, this king that was trying to go to war against Israel. And every time he stepped right, there they were. They knew his moves. He went left. And he's talking to his own advisors going, what is going on here? And they advise him that it's Elisha, the man of God. It's like he knows the secret things that you say in your bedroom. He has some kind of divine knowledge Ezekiel, too, is another lad like this. God gives him insight into the secret things that the leaders of Israel are doing behind closed doors. Despicable things ah, before their God. But they don't think anyone sees it because they're doing it in, in the walls, in behind, where no one can see them. And they think their sins and their atrocities go unnoticed. But God sees it and he lets... Some of these lads know about it and they appear to be in the possession of knowledge that they, that they couldn't have. Is Jesus someone like this? Is Jesus just another divine man, another divine prophet, someone who God kind of speaks to and lets him know stuff and then he reveals it? If this was the case and Nathaniel's rightly interpreted it, his response would be something along those lines. You are a prophet, a man of God. You know, you're a messianic figure. There's something special about you. However, this revelation, this display of supernatural powers that Jesus has, has shared with Nathaniel, there's, there's more at work than just the work of a prophet. Jesus has displayed insight far beyond that of a prophet. Well, he is the prophet par excellence, Jesus. No matching him. But he is no mere messenger boy of God. There is a sense of self-authenticity about what Jesus is saying. There is a hint of divinity about this man. Nathaniel's response to this suggests that this is true. There is more going on here. Then what meets the eye? Transformers. It's a good movie. And tied up in this is this, is this whole thing of this, this, I saw you under the fig tree. Something about what Jesus has said there has resonated with Nathaniel way beyond just a prophetic insight. So I went looking into this fig tree. I hate figs. I hate fig jam. My dad used to feed it to me when I was a kid. Really don't like it. However, in the Old Testament, fig trees are um, they're a symbol of someone's home. Uh, somebody's a place 
of, 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 of home, really. Isaiah 36.16, Micah 4.4 4, and Zechariah 3.10, we, we get this picture of a fig tree being analogous with, with, with somewhere to live. And furthermore, in more contemporary times, in, in later years, the fig tree, uh, with its abundant shade, was used by Jews and uh, scholars and rabbis as a place of prayer, of meditation and study. How about that? It is likely then that Nathaniel, good Jew that he is, has been sitting under his fig tree in his home. And he's had some outstanding experience of communion with God in the privacy of his own home as he is engaged in his regular devotional life. We don't know the content. We don't know what's happened. But Nathaniel connects the dots. He recognises the illusion that Jesus makes. And it's to this experience that Nathaniel has had that Jesus is now uh, speaking to. Jesus is answering Nathaniel's questions at the very heart of his concern. How do I know you, Nathaniel? Oh, we've met, mate. Oh, we know each other. Under the fig tree, in your devotional life, in your quiet times, in your study of the scriptures, we've met. You know me, Nathaniel, and I know you. This is an extraordinary revelation to Nathaniel. And it's one that instantly dispels his scepticism and his doubts. Probably nothing less than that could have actually done it. This is no ordinary rabbi. This is much, much more. This man is divine. And it's Nathaniel's response. It's way over the top. It far exceeds anything that's been said of Jesus so far. But he has had an encounter with Jesus that far exceeds anything that anyone in this gospel so far has had. Well, his response exceeds anything said so far, probably by the characters interacting with Jesus. It's a bit hard to top the prologue and the description of Jesus that's given there. But Nathaniel's experience goes well beyond. And Nathaniel ascribes to Jesus certain titles, certain names in response to this. He says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Such statements are obviously an acknowledgement on behalf of Nathaniel that Jesus is more than just a prophet. He is, he is the real Messiah, the promised one of whom the scriptures foretold. And as such, these responses are entirely appropriate. And they have no doubt come from an Israelite who is indeed in good relationship with God. Nathaniel can, by virtue of his, his relationship with God, he is one who has read the scriptures and he looks at them and he is one who, uh, who insightfully looks and tries to perceive as he goes there. And now, he is one who can rightfully identify that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. 
we know this because John, um, Jonathan, Nathaniel's character has been revealed to us by Jesus. We know what the history of this man is, or we can know. We know what he's like. And this is what has led Nathaniel to identify more precisely than most who Jesus is. He has, uh, if you like, felt and seen a commonality between the one standing before him and the one he has read about. He's joining the dots, Nathaniel. Uh, Nathaniel's. we need to look at this. We need to just see what this means, this son of God. He attributes to him, that, firstly, that he is the son of God. Now, um, this, this, this title carried with it um, messianic, a sense of, 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 of a messiah. Uh, within the Old Testament. And, and, and this Messiahship within the Old Testament as it, as it came out was linked and, and linked with uh, Davidic royalty and, and all this sense of kingship. And it was kind of sensed that this one would come out of Israel to be the Messiah. It was also the term the king of Israel was used by Palestinian Jews also in a reference to the Messiah. And it's here that uh, we see it used. Uh, Nathaniel is, is, is declaring these things, that you are the Son of God and that you are the King of Israel, and he rightly does it. And these are lofty terms, and they're impressive. But there's more to these terms than just what's crouched in their Judaism and in their history. And we get a sense that Nathaniel is onto it. I think he is. But still tied, these terms are still tied to Judaism and to uh, all this history that the Jews have. Their expectations of the Messiah is that he would be a political liberator, uh, one who would redeem and restore Israel as a nation back into true community with God and put them back up the top of the ladder where they belong. These are, these are the things that are at their disposal as they try to understand this. Yes, Jesus is uh, tr- truly the king, but his kingdom is not of this world. As he says in John 18, his kingdom is not of this world. It is not geographically located or it's not in a, a temple or a building. It's much bigger. And yes, he is the son of God. But it is in a sense far beyond anything expected by Moses and the prophets. His sonship is tied to his unique relationship and his oneness and his intimacy that he shares with God the Father. Jesus' sonship and his kingship is more than just this messianic hope. It is, it is metaphysical. It is about his being and about his origin. And Jesus is about to clarify this and about to reveal this to the disciples and particularly to Nathaniel. He's about to show them the full expanse of the truth and where these Uh, Names and titles really go. 
This is stuff far beyond what Nathaniel could have ever expected. And he, uh, he begins this with a promise. He says to Nathaniel, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree and we know each other. Let me tell you something, Nathaniel. There's more to come. You shall see greater things than this, Nathaniel. And now as he turns and he speaks to the whole group, he's not just addressing Nathaniel anymore. He's speaking to them all. The you here, I tell you the truth, is plural. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Introducing this promise. This is a promise of greater things, of more revelation, of deeper revelation than what, I'm, than what you're seeing just here. Introducing this promise here. Just a couple of little things to pick up on as we read our, as we read our Bibles. The use of the double Amen in John's Gospel is only in John's Gospel and it's a little signature utterance of Jesus in this Gospel. And when you see it in the NIV, it says, I tell you the truth. In the NASB or the ESV, it'll say something along the lines of truly, truly. If you're still reading the King James Version, you might have verily, verily. But this is here. This is a signature utterance of Jesus and it's there to confirm and emphasise the trustworthiness and the importance of what he's about to say. When you read this little phrase, it's time to switch on and really hear what's about to be said. He wants you to listen. This is exceptionally important. It also uh, indicates within the Gospel of John, Jesus' self-authenticating authority. Uh, the rabbis and the teachers, they would say things like, um, you know, Rabbi so-and-so says, or in the book of this, it says that. But Jesus says things like, I tell you. It's indicative of his divinity and his authority. Also, in this little little part here, just a few, there's been a lot of name calling in this um, in this little passage. Just something else we need to look at is that Jesus calls himself after all this explanation about who he is. He says that he is the son of man. Now basically in John's gospel, the use of the son of man, this is a self, this is a title that Jesus has given himself. And he's trying to get away from any misconception, any messianic misconception that's tied with the with Judaism's expectations of the Messiah. So he calls himself the Son of Man, but it finds its 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 divine um, identification, if you like, that identifies the Son of Man as a divine one in Daniel seven. It's a great little self-title that Jesus gives to Himself. In Daniel seven, we see that the Son of Man is one whose origins are with the Father in heaven. This is who Jesus is saying, "This is who I am." But in this, in this statement that Jesus has said as he describes the greater revelation, what you will see, what will happen, there's no avoiding further illusion in this passage here. Again, Jesus is speaking. And again, in their, in their little Jewish brains, they would instantly have images of Jacob, the patriarchal figure. As Jesus talks about this, Jacob in Genesis 28, 
has this dream. And now what Jesus is saying, he is speaking in relationship to his role and his function on earth in their lives with them. The patriarchal figure Jacob had had a dream back in Genesis 28, uh, verses 10 to 17. He has this dream. And um, in this dream, he dreams of the activity of God. He says this ladder and he's there and the angels of God are ascending and descending and the Lord is standing at the top of this ladder and he's speaking to Jacob. And Jacob's seeing the activity of God from heaven to earth. And this dream for Jacob, it served as confirmation to him that, uh, of God's generational promises to him through Abraham as his ancestor and that, and that God was present now with Jacob. He, I am present with you, Jacob. I am here with you. The dream is so overpowering, so vivid and so real that when Jacob wakes up, he is in awe and he declares, how awesome is this place? This, this is none other than the house of God. This is none other than the gateway to heaven. This is where God is experienced. I have experienced God here. I have known him. He has revealed himself to me. He's made himself known to me. He's confirmed himself to me. And then he names the place Bethel, which means house of God, where God lives, where God dwells, where God is known, where God is seen. Jesus' revelation to Nathaniel and the group is to say that he is the new Bethel, that in him... That it is in him that God is most fully revealed and experienced. Jesus is the one. He is the end of all the searching and all the hope and the promises of the Old Testament. He is the word come to life. He is the word come to life. It's something that Nathaniel has actually just really lived out. Nathaniel 1, who reads the word, has now seen it come to life in front of him and reveal itself in front of him. This is an experience that he's had. Jesus, the Son of Man, has become the locus of divine glory, the place of God's activity on earth. It is the point of contact between heaven and humanity. What Jacob could only dream of, is now being fulfilled to these men in Jesus. He is the new house of God. He is the new temple. You look in John 2.19 there where he says, you know, destroy this temple and I'll replace it because he is the new temple. He is where God is found. He is the gate through which people must go if they want to know God. Again, Jesus is speaking... um, Later on in verse 10 there, as he's talking about how he is the good shepherd and he's talking to the Pharisees and the Pharisees, they're just not perceiving. They're just not looking insightfully into who Jesus is. And he's saying to them, I am the gate. I am the way. And they're, they're going, no, you're not. But you know what? Here's the point. Is the point I'd like to make today. This is not just something grounded in history. This is not just an incredible experience 
that Nathaniel had or that Jacob had or that the great heroes of our faith seem to have. The Apostle Paul, um, John Calvin, Martin Luther, these great men in our faith. This is an experience that Jesus has opened up now to everybody who comes and perceives that he is God in the flesh, the word come to life. This is the present reality. We can know God through Christ Jesus. That's what's being revealed here. That's what's being said here. This is the amen, amen promise that Jesus is making. Nathaniel has had this experience. God in the word has come to life. Do you know the primary place where this occurs for us is in our devotional lives. It's in our private walks before God. There's so much to do as a Christian, isn't there? We're doing all the time. We're getting to church. We're joining some committee. We've got to go out and make friends and evangelise and all this stuff. Good stuff. But there is a being about being a Christian. Nathaniel has experienced God in his quiet times, under his fig tree. It's a metaphor for one's devotional life. Their walk before God. The challenge, the challenge that I'd like, better wrap this up. Got six more pages to go, but let's wrap this up. challenge that I, I reckon, let's, I will leave it here. The challenge I'd like to leave you with today is how are you approaching this central aspect of your Christian life? Uh, I want to tell you something. If you're expecting nothing, you won't be disappointed. But if you're expecting much more, you will get much more. If you're expecting nothing, the probability is you'll get nothing back. It's like a marriage. It's divinely instituted and it's full of unlimited potential. Some people approach this gift uh, with passion, with faithfulness, with anticipation, with longevity. Others approach it with a bit of a ho-hum attitude. I've got to read my Bible. I better do that. Okay, you're done. And they wonder why nothing of any lasting value develops. And others, even sadder, don't see any value for it at all. Christians, saved by the grace of God, an encounter with Jesus, never even open their Bibles. Use them as bookends. Nathaniel was diligent in his devotional life before God. Something witnessed to and testified by Jesus. Isn't it interesting? I'm going on, I know. Isn't it interesting that all this witness about Jesus in this first chapter here, it's all about Jesus. Everyone's testifying about Jesus. The first significant thing that Jesus says, the first significant thing that comes out of his mouth is a testimony about the character and statute of a man. I just found that really interesting. As I read through the passage, something that really grabbed me. 
didn't stand up and go, no, I am God, I am the Messiah, I am. You guys have got to believe this. first significant thing he said was about the character and the testament of a man and his life before God. And that man, greater things were revealed to. And the promise is for us that there's more to this Christian life. There's so much more to know and to learn. It is centred in Jesus and coming to God and knowing him through Jesus. The primary place for us, modern day Christians, that this takes place is here in his word. The greatest gift to humanity, God revealed the word come to life. Some of us know this experience. Others of us are still at the caution and doubt stage. We're not sure about the witness and testimony of Jesus. I want to tell you something. Jesus is not scared of probing questions. He invites them. Push. If you don't know Jesus, push on the truth. Truth stands any investigation. For those of us that are committed Christians, that know Jesus, let's get into our devotional lives. As I read this, uh, I thought to myself, I'm going to become more intentional. I went and got myself a little journal. I've never journaled before in my life. I always thought it was a bit of a Nancy, sort of a girly thing to do. Sorry if you men who journal. I've joined you. But intentionality, expecting something out of our life with God, not just expecting it to be travelling and just... Never really going anywhere, but approaching God and expecting something to develop. I'm not saying when you have your devotional tomorrow that something amazing is going to happen, Jesus will turn up in a room. But over time, as you dedicate yourself to it, God will reveal himself to you. It is his promise. We might just close with prayer. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. The word come to life. The love of God revealed in the flesh. And those of us who want to who want to seek you, who want to know you, who are insightful, who want to perceive the revelations in front of us, your promise is that you will reveal greater and greater things to us. We thank you that you are a God who comes near. A God who wants to know us. Thank you for this. Uh, I, just, I thank you for this church and this body of people who love you, who want to know you, who want to go on this journey with you. And uh, we commit ourselves to you now. Oh, Lord, I just pray that you have spoken to us this morning, uh, changing and transforming our hearts through your word. Uh, we commit ourselves to you now in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.